0: This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony
1: Lacanina. And I'm Matt Davis. Here we are again for another episode pretty quickly after the last episode. We're in the studio right now. A.K.A. your bedroom. Yeah,
0: we have not dis- probably described this, but we record these intros mostly in my bedroom.
1: It's a very nice bedroom. It's spacious.
0: It's nice. Uh, it's not meant for like audio recording, but we, you know, we're we're like what you call a bedroom artist. It's like bedroom yeah, it's a bedroom podcasting.
1: It's a very DIY operation, clearly. You're on an amp right now. <laughs> I'm amped about today's episode. Oh, let's do yeah. that. Yeah. What are, we, what are we talking about, man? Who did you interview? Uh, let's just get into it. All right, no more dilly-dallying.
0: Today's episode was a fantastic conversation I had with Dr. Caleb Kamiri, who is an assistant professor of electrical engineering and computer science at Rice University. So this is probably the first non-neuroscience professor that we've had on the program,
1: but his work highly involves neural circuits. Okay, so it's kind of parallel to neuroscience, but... What are we talking about? Well, we talk about this in the interview,
0: and his background comes from mathematics, electrical engineering, physics. He has a background that involves understanding how signals are processed, such as radio waves, and he did work on wireless technology. And so his background comes from that, and at the moment, though, he's applying it to brains because, as we know, brains have a lot of electrical properties to them. Certainly. Electrical engineers and neuroscientists, we are, it's like bread and butter.
1: Yeah, yeah. Just uh, different sides of the same coin.
0: Yes. He comes at it from a unique perspective. He's trying to develop tools that address a central problem of how can we decode brain activity in the real time and mm. then provide some kind of feedback to the brain, this sort of what they call a closed loop system.
1: Okay. So when I encounter brain recordings and typically I see people putting electrodes in brains and we're recording signals and activity of neurons and that we generate these kind of massive data sets from all of the neural activity and we decode that offline and figure out what's going on. And sometimes the math is complicated and it takes a while to crunch through so this is a different approach exactly so you're describing what the
0: majority of neuroscience work is this offline you do experiments you record brain activity you get populations of neurons that are spiking you take the data and then later you look at it this is something that would be much more active it would be online reading the brain and then on top of that not just getting the data but being able to manipulate the brain in a smart way
1: okay Right. So, so reacting say, to a signal that is identified in real time. Exactly. And then you could uh, maybe disrupt that signal and look at the effects.
0: Yes. And so the classic problem that actually Dr. Kamiri even worked on involved let's say we have a brain of a paralyzed patient that cannot move a limb. well the brain is still able to generate a signal of trying to move the limb is there a way in which we could decode that brain online and then provide that as some sort of like electrical impulse or have some sort of bionic arm that would respond to that being able to decode brain states online and then provide some sort of feedback is the core focus of Dr. Kamiri's lab and so some of the specifics that he's been working on is trying to look at learning and memory are there ways in which we could disrupt memory online and this has implications for PTSD and traumatic memories. One of the focuses and goals of his lab is to figure out ways to read out an animal having a traumatic experience and then interrupt the sort of brain state that's happening there and counteract that. So as a therapeutic.
1: Yeah, I mean, this this all sounds pretty incredible just uh, as a research endeavor itself. It also sounds kind of sci-fi, like we're talking about bionic arms here. I'm thinking Star Wars. We're talking about brain-machine interfaces. I'm thinking the Matrix. Yes, this is all futuristic stuff, but I mean,
0: it's happening right now in Dr. Kamiri's lab. The other thing that we talked about in this episode that we haven't really focused on in any other episode is about data sharing and open sourceness in science, which has been, it's a, it's a topic that I think we all need to think about as scientists. And it's something that we in general need to start grappling because our experiments are done and then they sometimes get put into archives that can only be accessed with a lot of money. There's paywalls involved to this research. So there's been a big movement involving how do we get information out to the public and then also how do we start sharing large data sets with people. So...
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can see the good that that has. I know there's extreme challenges to that. Um, Some of the data sets that I generate and I see people generate are many, many gigabytes up to getting up to terabyte range, like for some of these data sets. And then within the data set, there's so much complex structure that it's almost only known to the person that generated it. So you have to solve a few problems of how to share just massive file sizes but also how to um, make sure that that can be actually used by somebody else because it's just so complicated the way that you generate it. So you have to make standards, I suppose. And I think I've seen efforts for this, like people have repositories and whatnot online, but it's not widely adopted at this point.
0: Yeah, so we talk about this in the episode and exactly the same problems you're mentioning. And he has been on the forefront of trying to be at least proactive about this concept. So his a lot of his work has been put online a lot of his data sets so he is uh, a proponent of it so we talk about that in today's episode
1: ah fantastic well i suppose if you had a bionic cochlea you might trigger it into the perk state (laughs) flipping my cochlea state to perk and (laughs)
0: that's so dope (laughs) So bad. All right, let's get to the interview.
2: I'm a assistant professor of electrical and computer engineering at Rice University, which is sort of cool. I think that I may be one of two hands worth of electrical engineers that do electrophysiology and awake behaving animals. I can really only count two right now, but I think that there probably are some more, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's a, it's a unique job and one that I really enjoy because I think that as an engineer, I get to think about problems differently than basic scientists sometimes feel like they have to. So I did my PhD at Stanford University. Well, let's start from the beginning. So I grew up in the DC suburbs in Maryland. I went to the University of Maryland College Park. Both of my parents, I guess, have advanced degrees, which is is somewhat unusual, but probably going to be less. So my mom's a nurse. My dad is an economist, I remember when he finished his PhD, I was in middle school. He went on to work in policy analysis for the United States Department of Agriculture, so he was like a career civil servant and then is now now retired. I, it's very vivid in my memory of the whole concept of being a graduate student and that sort of extended process of the thesis and these sorts of
0: things. Okay. But, you absorb that even at a young age? Yeah, originally. you know,
2: it's very strange. I think when I was an undergrad, I think I always just assumed I would get a PhD because that's what people do.
0: Yeah. Or um, it's familiar too.
2: <laughs> yeah. I think you don't realize that these things are unusual until you sort of meet other people. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom also got a Graduate degree or master's degree while I was
0: in nursing or
2: extant, and yeah, I think a focus in, in geriatric nurse education or something like that. Yeah, so I went to a, a science and technology magnet high school.
0: Mm, okay, that sounds like it would kickstart at least a scientific mind sort of. It, well, <laughs> right.
2: yeah, I, 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 well, I remember being forced, it's very interesting. <laughs> the, the late, the, yeah. 80s were probably a very good time to grow You guys were you guys alive in the 80s? I was born in the 80s, right? Wait.
1: 90s. Dang it. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> so, somehow there were some things that like are interesting like science fairs. I mm-hmm. clearly remember being forced. I don't know that I loved doing it, being forced to do a science fair project starting in elementary school like almost every year. Yeah. And so the concept of hypothesis tests and all these things were things that are familiar to me. When I was young, I don't think I imagined I would be a scientist. I think I imagined I would be maybe an engineer. So I went to undergrad. I was going to be a mechanical engineer because I liked Legos. It's very strange. Mm-hmm. I feel like that now when I, when I meet people, like potential graduate students, and I, I just expect them to have this idea about what it is that they want to do. When I look at my own path, I think I, I see all these things where I was I just random randomly perturbed from one path to another. So I think I, I, I did one semester as a mechanical engineer and I was like, man, I don't want to actually build things. I like computers. I want to work with computers too.
0: I, I will attest to my similar path. And when you when you go back, you might be able to trace the path of how it worked. But I think like if we were to say like in that moment, what were you thinking? probably it was like, I don't really know what
2: <laughs> and it's very interesting because at in Maryland you had to declare as a freshman. Maybe, You didn't have to declare, but you were expected to say what sort of major you wanted to be at Rice, where I teach now. Mm -hmm. There is sort of the university policy is that you don't have to decide until the second semester of your sophomore year. So it's interesting because I feel like it was really nice to be able to have some exploration, but it also was useful to sort of get a little bit down into the grit of things a little bit earlier. I think starting as a junior, as an engineer, trying to do it in two years is just really too hard. But yeah, so so at that point I decided I was going to be a double major between maybe well, actually I was going to be a triple major, in math, electrical engineering, and physics.
0: Just round it all out. Yeah. <laughs> well, because I sort
2: of I'd, I'd sort of like looked at the classes and like, you know There's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of overlap. And sure. was, the final exam in calculus. I I was taking senior level calculus as a as a freshman. So this is like this like theoretical calculus. I woke up an hour and 30 minutes for the final exam. And I like late jumped into my – yeah, it's a two-hour <laughs> final. I was like – jumped into my, my pants and like I raced down the hill. And it was hilarious. I had stayed up to like two because like, we were allowed one piece of paper, two-sided, and all this mm. small writing on it. <laughs> and and my professor's name was uh, – uh, his last name was Sweet. He's a really nice guy, really gentle. I showed up. I was like, I'm so sorry. I overslept. And he's like – you can start your exam now. And at the end of the exam, he's like, OK, look, I have to get on a train. So you're on the honor system. There wasn't like an official honor system in Maryland. Mm-hmm. You sit in my office for the next hour, and you can work. Okay. And then turn in your exam when you're done. So I turned in my exam. I thought I'd done pretty well. And I got a B in the class. And I always wondered, did I get a B because I was <laughs> late? Or did I do it because I, I'd messed up on my final? Right? Yeah. I never knew. I saw him like senior year. Like I was graduating at this point, no longer a math major, no longer a physics major. And, uh, it's like, Professor Sweet, do you remember me? He's like, no. It's like, oh, I showed up late for your exam. What, did you take points off? He's like, no, I would never do that. That's how he answered your question. Yes, exactly. So anyways, but I still took his class the next semester. So the second semester of senior calculus. And at that point, I didn't want to be a math major, but I was still happy with electrical engineering physics. And so then as a physics major, sometime in the second semester of sophomore year, there's a guy named, uh, Sylvester Gates, who is, I don't think he's, he's a string theorist. He's actually on a commercial, right? There's this sort of ridiculous tax commercial where they like bring in the genius to like push the button. He's, he's use, one of I those guys. It. He's African American. He's got this big, big long hair. So you yeah. know, watch TV, good. Anyway, so so I, <laughs> I see him periodically uh, around or in the news. So he, we, this was a Newtonian dynamics class, and uh, at this point in my college career, I had developed the habit of of sort of optimizing my homework. And so I would sort of start and, you know, sort of figure out what was going on and then sort of just not really finish it. And uh, in this class, I think homework was maybe 50% of the grade or 60% of the grade, but I hadn't really internalized that. And so it got to the end of the class and I had the highest exam average in the class and I was sort of proud of myself. And I got my report card and I got a C. I was like, what? I was like the highest exam score in the class. And he's like, no, you got a C. I was like, oh. And so this is, this is so hilarious. I'm embarrassed to say it. But I feel like sometimes you have to embarrass yourself in public, right? Good. So We like that. <laughs> so I convinced him to have a meeting with me and my parents. So here I am, I am as a 19-year-old <laughs> with my parents in his office. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, Professor Gates, I, I don't know why I got a senior class. And he's like, Caleb, homework was 60% of the class. You didn't do any homework. And I was like, but, but. And my parents were like, what? <laughs> I was like, but. But by exam, he's like, no, you had to do your homework. And I was like, oh. And my parents were like... What? So we walked out. But then the conclusion of that was, I was like, you know, maybe, well, we'll just say maybe I didn't have time to do all my homework. And so I needed to settle down on one major. So I settled on electrical engineering. And at that point, part of the requirement of being an engineer at Maryland was you had to take some social science classes. You had to take a lower level class and an upper level class, I guess, to have some broadening of your horizons or something like this. My dad was an economist. I had taken two econ classes. Then I looked and I had to take six more econ classes. And the econ classes... There usually wasn't homework that was graded. And it was dominated by people who couldn't get into the business school in Maryland. So they would, for example, you know, they would spend like a week teaching how to do a derivative. And I was like, oh, I know how to do derivative. I can just skip that I week. I can just skip that week. But I, I mean, I would still go to class, but I would just yeah. zone out. So anyway, so I, I ended up being a double major in electrical engineering and economics. Okay. Um, and I even briefly considered going to graduate school in economics. Mm-hmm. And my econometrics professor was so excited about this prospect that I was in his office talking about it. And he like picked up the phone and called the program director at the NSF. And he's like, I know the deadline for NSF graduate fellowships was last week. I've got this rock star student here who wants to apply for one. Can you apply late? Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was. I was like, wow, this is awesome. That dude. is good. It was. And, and then and the guy was like, no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Dang
2: it. Oh, I thought it was going to end. <laughs> yeah. And so, well. yeah. And so, so then I, I decided, okay, no, I'm going to apply to electrical engineering graduate schools, and I had a list. So my list was Stanford, Berkeley, MIT, Maryland. was I to Maryland. I liked it. And I started look, working on the applications. And there was a guy who was a, a senior who I'd known the previous year who had, was really, really good and had gone to graduate school. And he reported back that MIT was just cold and depressing. Ironically, that's where he went to school. Chris Bueller. I, I've often wondered what, what happened to him. After. He was really smart. But I was like, I don't want to go somewhere that's cold and depressing. I told my dad I was thinking about Berkeley. And he's like, "You can't go to Berkeley. People are there are crazy. <laughs> They're hippies." And um, ironically, my, my wife is a Berkeley alum. Oh, so nice. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So, so you have an
2: affinity for that US, lifestyle, I guess. Yeah. So. At
1: yeah. Um, least California. So,
2: so, so I applied to Stanford. I applied to Maryland. I got into both places. At first, I I didn't get a, a fellowship offer from Stanford. I I was too late to apply for the graduate mm-hmm. fellowships. This was still unusual, I think, at least. You know, no one had told us about these sorts of things when I was an undergrad, right? Now I feel like I'm much more proactive about telling my undergrads at Rice, you know, there are these graduate fellowships, these sorts of things. Anyway, so I, I was offered a fellowship at, at Stanford and I was like, oh, well, I guess I'll go. It's nice. It's California. So
0: that's great to me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: So I went to Stanford. I had this fellowship that, that covered me for three years. And rather than doing what I expect my students to do and buckling down and getting involved in research immediately, I started exploring. So, I sort of joined a lab. I joined a lab in aerospace engineering where they were interested in making small satellites. And f- but it became clear after about two semesters that they really didn't have any research that would be appropriate for electrical engineers. So then I was like, well, I got to keep doing research I'm supposed to find a lab. So I worked for an MRI lab for a year and a half. So this is under the auspices of Dwight Nishimura. But he had several senior research fellows that were basically junior faculty. And one of them was named Steve Connolly. He's a professor at Berkeley now and he was interested in building uh, small MRI magnets that wouldn't require liquid helium cooling. Mm-hmm. The idea was that you know if you're imaging somebody's wrist, then you don't really need a bore that's a meter in diameter and, and if you have a, a small enough bore, then you maybe with just a, a, a regular electromagnet. Uh, you could actually get a high enough field that you could image where the field uh, regularity was was still good enough for imaging so they were building these small magnets it, it was very cool but I never have liked circuit design and that was the kind of research that they were doing so then here I was getting my master's degree after two years it was like well I guess I'm what am I going to do next so I got a job in industry so I went and worked for a, a tech company uh, one of my best friends growing up. Uh, we went to school from first grade all the way through the University of Maryland. He actually got into Stanford also and then deferred and then decided and said to go work for Microsoft. So his brother was working for a company in the Bay Area uh, called Datapath Systems that made uh, integrated circuits for telecommunication stuff. So this is when DSL was still cool. <laughs> Maybe I remember you're no. born in the 90s, you're like, DSL, what's no, DSL? No, I upgraded from my dial-up to DSL oh, and everything awesome. was amazing. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah, so this is a company that was making chips for hard drives. It turns out that hard drives... Like the read head on a hard drive is very similar to a a communication system in that you're transmitting a huge amount of data really rapidly, and you have to do a lot of the same coding and so on very, very rapidly. And so uh, they they had just they were just in the process of converting their their product line from being all hard drives to to sort of exploring the 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 telecom area. So while I was there, about three months after I joined, my boss started coming up to my desk and saying, "You want to go? You want to work for us full time?" Say, no, I'm just going to work for six months and then go back to grad school. Mm-hmm. And yeah, do it again. The next day, I say, the end of the week, they announced that we'd been acquired. So it was a small company, 99 people. Wait, the end of the first week or no, this is like about three <laughs> months in. Yeah. We've been acquired by LSI Logic, which is, I think now has also been acquired. I mean, it's serial things, but they were a big company, big integrated service company at that point. Uh, and so there was a hundred employees. I think it was exactly hundred employees. And this is a company that, that had been bootstrapped. They didn't really have any venture capital funding. And so they all now inherited huge amounts of LSI Logic stock, including the other intern who had decided to go full-time and the secretaries who they gave like bonus stock to, but not me. <laughs> so 99 out of 100 people in the company yeah. were now at various levels of rich from like, I, I can buy a Rolex rich, to I, I'm going to buy a Porsche rich to like, I'm going to be ridiculously wealthy. But yeah. part of this acquisition was that everyone had to Revest their stock options, meaning that they had to work for LSI for three years to get all this money.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so what was hilarious was this was 2000. And so the stock market crashed and LSI logic stock was like at $60 when they bought us and then dropped to $59. And it dropped to $50. Everybody had the stock tickers on their, on their computers because they're like, we're rich. We're You're rich. Right. <laughs> $40, $30. And the stock mm-hmm. tickers went away and everybody sort of depressed. And so at the end of that six months, Yeah, I was happy. Nothing (laughs) held me there, right? I I went back to Stanford and they all were like now having to work for this company for less money. And it's very strange. Like you're still tired. You still have sort of free money, right? But somehow the fact that you've lost half of it
0: makes you depressed. That's really interesting, actually. (laughs) Anyway,
2: so I went back and at that point it's like, okay, wireless communications. This is, you know, it's clear cell phones. This is, this is, A big deal, improving bandwidth, allowing people to have data on their phones, it's going to be important. And so I I identified, there's basically two faculty that I wanted to work with. And I started hanging out with them, taking their classes, TAing for one of them. And then I pitched her with this idea at the end of of that year. I was like, okay, here's this, you know, I have these ideas about multi-user capacity and improving it through various techniques. And like, I mean, this is stuff that's sort of evolutionary, but it was still sort of new research ideas at that point. She was like, Caleb, wireless is old. Let's do something new, something different. How about either the brain or genomics? Hmm. So why don't you take the summer to read some papers and then then we'll figure it out at the end of the summer. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Okay. So the person you were working for just basically forced in a way, just
2: like, hey, let's take a... Well, so, so, so her name yeah. is Teresa Ming. She was yeah. the first female professor at, at Stanford. She had... Just that summer had had her company, Atheros, which makes wireless chipsets acquired for, you know, whatever, you no, know, go public. So went public. And so she suddenly was worth many tens of millions of dollars. She was like really smart, really experienced. Did so, you want to just do something risky and adventurous? Yeah. And I think her, her argument was, you know, that the time where we can make a big difference by thinking hard about problems may be going like maybe industry now is, is focused on small, imp- like 10% improvements instead of. Fifty percent improvements, and it's no fun to work on ten percent improvements. You know, maybe mm-hmm. maybe let's let's think about a new field where we can go into that's emerging. Okay, and a guy named Krishna Shinoy had just started at Stanford that that summer, who was interested in, in brain machine interfaces. And I went to meet with him, and she she was excited also about him. And that basically one thing led to another, and then I was embedded in his lab as a as a signal processing focused person, but in, interested in in, in decoding neural activity for brain machine interfaces had you
0: had a real interest in brain neuro questions at that time or had were, was your mind very focused on electrical problem solving sort of like
2: i was interested uh, in signal processing that's what yeah. i sort of knew okay
0: um, probability statistics what did that. It, what did it feel like then being embedded in somebody asking questions about well memories it was so exciting brains,
2: It was it was really it was it was really cool because we were focused on this idea of you know we're going to take people who are paralyzed we're going to let them move their limbs again right it it was it 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 is it's an awesome field I think what was interesting was over that three years that I I worked four years that I worked with them with Teresa and Krishna I think I got a little jaded because I felt like we were making sort of very slow progress towards something that would be like you know, not very useful. Mm-hmm. It was really amazing. So he gave a keynote at SFN this past year, and seeing how far they've come. So I graduated two thousand six from Stanford, right? So two thousand fifteen. Um, in that nine years, it actually now looks like the vision that I had, right? I mean, they have a, there's yeah. they they have a, a female patient who has ALS, who's like. Typing like super fast on a, on a computer and like writing sentences almost as fast as I can type, right? Just with her mind, right? It's, wow. it's fascinating. That's exactly what I imagined. That's yeah. what I thought it would be like. And that's why it was really, mm. it was an easy sell. I was like, this is going to be so great. Yeah. You yeah. know, we're going to revolutionize this. And it turns out it's hard and it takes 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that I, I, I joined the lab in 2001. So almost 50. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. So that was cool. So I I got to sort of be a part of his lab starting. So he had just recruited his first graduate student, his first postdoc. His first postdoc was a guy named Mark Churchland, who's really bright and is a really cool neuroscientist, had a lot of ideas. And what was neat was that Krishna was sort of driving this vision for the engineering aspect. And Mark was sort of driving this this vision for the scientific questions you could ask about how movements are generated by the brain. And so that lab, I think, has it really thrived. And then Mark was there for like ten years, and now has finally started his own lab at Columbia. I'm sure he's going to be successful. But it's it's it was it was a it was a really neat place to be with sort of multiple really intelligent mentors.
0: What kind of contributions did you make while you were there? And then, like when you were leaving, what you said maybe it was not fast enough, or maybe <laughs> yeah. Well,
2: okay, so yeah. so this idea of, of invasive brain machine interfaces wasn't new, right? So there's there's a couple like Andy Schwartz, Miguel Nicolelis had been. Working on this, and I should, I have to shout out John Donahue. Okay. I want to make sure if anybody listens to the podcast that I, I gave the right shout outs. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, they've been working on this for a while and, but they've been focused on this as sort of like a, a black box, uh, decoder problem. So they were recording a motor cortex and, and, uh, just sort of inverting motor cortex basically to try to get motor intent. Krishna was coming from Richard Anderson's lab. Richard Anderson is this guy who's sort of a, the pioneer of, of understanding eye-hand coordination, right? So the sort of how ocular motor and how actual motor movements are planned by the brain and the the brain areas that are involved in that. And Krishna came with the concept of wanting to look at uh, brain-machine interfaces that were based on intent as opposed to the actual execution of a movement. So you can intend to make a movement before you do it, right? And so you can see this: if I tell you where where you're going to move, if I give you a target mm-hmm. before I give you the actual cue to begin moving, then you can move faster and more accurately than if I just tell you, you know, pick up that timer. Yeah. So basically, the okay. concept was to let's let's make a brain machine interface that uses premotor activity. Okay. So when I was there, that I, I focused really on two big problems. So the first was. If you have this signal, this planning signal that tells you where an animal is planning to reach to, but before they've actually begun executing, and you have this this signal that is produced that sort of drives the muscle, the peri-movement signal, how can you optimally combine those two pieces of information to produce like the best result, right? So they're both telling you something about what the animal wants to do. How can you combine them? And so I built some statistics-based models for doing that. And then the second thing that I I was interested in is, is, okay, now assume you have this uh, in all of our experiments up until like you know 2003 or so, they were structured this way. The animal would be touch fixating, so touching the screen, and then a target would come up, and then it would change color. That would be the cue to move to touch it. So you had this very nice distinction between the planning period, which is the period after he sees the target and before he starts to move, and the movement period, which is after he starts to move or after he's cued to move. Uh, So the question was, can we actually disambiguate those two signals just in the raw data without knowledge of the fact that the animal is planning or not? And so that led me to these latent variable or hidden Markov model-based approaches. I mean, you saw I'm still excited about latent latent variable models.
0: Let's go to that. You have data coming in from the brain, right? Potential like motor planning, but you're blinding yourself to what the actual animal is doing. And the question is, can I actually like predict what... Uh, yeah. What's actually happening in the real world, right? Is yeah. That a question? Yeah. So the
2: big question, right, is you, you, the monkey's brain is producing the signal. I want to move here. Yeah. Right. And it's doing it sort of in two phases. I'm going to move here. And now I want to actually move my arm, right? So there's these two phases. And in both of those phases, if you look at that signal, you see ensembles of neurons that if you look at them as a group, you can fairly accurately estimate what the animal wants to do in these two individual periods. Yeah. But now when you add time as a third variable, then now you need something that is a little bit more unsupervised meaning that you want to look at this data and now not only do you want to guess uh, not not only do you want to estimate what this group of neurons is telling the monkey to do but you also want to estimate what mode the brain is in by looking at that same group of neurons so now you're saying okay at this point based on how these neurons are active this monkey is not trying to move at all he's just trying to sit still and now Oh, now he's getting ready to make a movement. And so by looking at this group of neurons, I can estimate that that there's sort of a different state that the monkey's oh, brain in okay. Is so not it's adding it.
0: this almost underlying state dependency or something. Exactly. Okay. Exactly.
2: And, and what you just said, underlying state dependency, is a, a fancy way of saying that is that there's a latent or an unobserved variable. Yeah. Meaning, in this case... Uh, is the monkey not moving or planning or moving? So it's, it's unobserved, but it's it's modulating the, the neural activity.
0: Right? Mm. Like, how do you come to that conclusion based on just the activity? It, does that take lots of training and lots of observations of the data? Yes, yeah, so yeah,
2: exactly. So you, there, so there, there are some techniques that have been established in this in statistics for looking at data that that had this structure where there was observations that were being modulated by some underlying but unobserved variable and taking that data and inferring both that time series of that unobserved variable and the mapping from the unobserved variable to what you actually see in this case these these, these neurons that are firing. And so I was building these models that were sort of jointly representing time and the target.
0: Cool. That was maybe your whole PhD, right? That yeah, was like that was a, it.
2: Well, I mean, that, we say that's <laughs> it. That's, I'm
0: sure there's like there's so much that we could. We can probably spend this whole podcast talking about those types of things. I want to talk about the next movement yep. uh, in your career, yep. and then like what did that teach you about where you went next? Yep. I guess maybe what questions were driving you at that moment. All right,
2: I was getting ready to graduate, sort of in, in my okay. post-defense, not thesis, not yet completed year. <laughs> Mm-hmm. and uh, she's like what are you going to do I was like well I don't know Think about postdocs and she's like well uh, UCLA is hiring so why her don't you, go, yeah, her, why her, don't yeah. you go, go 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 on this faculty interview so I was like oh great that sounds awesome yeah
0: let's skip that step." <laughs> yeah
2: right it's still it's it's, it's, it's at, that rare time, art, at that at yeah. that point it was much more common for people to go directly uh, in electrical engineering to go directly to faculty positions. Yeah. it's still somewhat common we're interviewing right now for some some people that are fairly maybe one year post PhD anyway uh, so I went to UCLA, sort of an interesting interview, basically saying I'm going to do brain machine interface signal processing. And in my meeting with the department chair, he's like, so Cal, what are you going to do? What's your strategy if you aren't able to get data from the Schnoi lab anymore? Like, what if something happens to them or, you know, they're going they're you're, you start competing with them and they no longer want to supply you data? What are you going to do? It's like, well, you know, I can do some simulations or, you know, I'll develop new relationships with people here. And I'd already at that point had some ideas about deep brain simulation, which is something that we've now come back to in the lab. Um, but it, it really it put a seed in my mind that I, I was at this point of choice whereas where I could be a computational person, meaning somebody that collaborated with people that were doing experiments and getting data. Or potentially I could be a person that actually did experiments
0: and got my own data. Mm -hmm. And that put the fear in you like, oh wait, if it does, if those all do fall through, I'm going to need some like skills doing that.
2: And I'd always, I I had not worked on the experiments in the Schnoi lab because it was sort of part of the agreement between him and Teresa was that I was supposed to be doing data analysis. I always regretted not having that experience. And so as I was looking around, I interviewed at a couple of places basically for science postdocs. And part of this was following Krishna's path. So he had done a PhD at MIT on nanophotonics. So like building lasers or something. completely unrelated to neuroscience. Gotten excited about neuroscience as a, as a last year of his PhD and then gone a, and, and did a long postdoc in the Anderson lab. And I was like, you know, it worked for Krishna. Maybe I can do the same sort of thing. And so we had read several of Lauren's papers with Emory Brown about decoding.
0: This is Lauren Frank, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So he the the two of them sort of did some of the similar work and saying, okay, this prosthetic decoding stuff that we're doing you know, what if now our code is not something that's nice and linear and maps inverts very nicely? What if it's interesting and sparse and and here's you know a point process filter that you can use and and so it, this stuff that w- I was aware of him as a person. It's like oh he's at UCSF, so I went up to visit him. And I think around the same time they had a uh, a grant from uh, the Sloan Foundation to have these things called Sloan Schwartz Fellows, which are computational neuroscientists that was sort of embedded in, in, in physiology labs. And he's like, Cal, come be a Sloan Schwartz Fellow. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Wow, Lauren, I really like you. I like the idea of staying in the Bay Area. Yeah. Let's just do it." Yeah. he had a, he had a great lab. <laughs> uh, so this the, he must have been there. For this this was maybe year three or year four for him at, at UCSF. So he was still fairly junior, and it, it ended up being an awesome time. So like optogenetics, this is 2006. So the channel rhodopsin was like two years old. And I was going to do channel adoption in the hippie campus. He was friends with Carl. They were both McKnight scholars or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so we had a funnel to the Stanford-like free – so this guy named Feng Zhang who – like you know, what's going to happen is that that uh, uh, Carl and Ed Boyden will get a Nobel Prize for optogenetics, mm-hmm. and poor Fung is going to get nothing. And then he like apparently has also oh a, poor
0: yeah he's doing pretty well I think I've heard.
2: He's, he apparently he also was like one of the first people to do the uh, uh, CRISPR. CRISPR yeah. though so yeah, I, I there's a lot of it's complicated. He was it's always complicated. it's complicated I know. But he's I don't think he'll get the Nobel for that either right. But he's <laughs> what's great about Fung, I would I would just I would I would email him ask a question he'd He'd write back. I'd say, Hey, I need new virus. I'd drive down. he'd like stop whatever he's doing. He'd go into his freezer and like, you know, pull through. He'd be like, here's five vials of this one. Oh, this one might work better. Take take these, take these. Yeah. They're just like all free. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean it's, it's like <laughs> a kid in a candy
2: shop type. It time. was, it was. And, it, and once when he graduated and left, it suddenly became this thing where I had to like talk to the tech and there was a long time period, and people were much <laughs> less generous. And it was just weird. I've 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 not found Anybody who's been as generous in terms of their, their giving advice about how to do experiments and how to set things up mm-hmm. and, and just sort of giving reagents out as, as he was. And I think, yeah. I think, I don't know to what extent Carl's responsible for that or has just benefited from it, but uh, I, I feel like it's been a hallmark of his lab as well is this idea of just free, freely sharing. And it's, it's, it's been inspiring to me in some ways. Like I feel like that that it's a really cool way of, of running the yeah. world.
0: You, you do a little bit of that too, right? Uh, we try to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and even,
2: even some of the things, so we recently built a, so if you want to do chronic deep brain stimulation for your interest in Parkinson's disease and you want to see how DBS is affecting plasticity, for example, the way that people do that these days is that they put a commutator on some, some stimulation wires and they put it, put a rat in, in a, in a little bowl instead of in a, in a cage. And so recently I had an undergrad actually design this, this little battery powered stimulator. And I'm trying, I, at SFN this past year, I was like handing them out. Like I want to give them away because they, they cost like 10, maybe 10 bucks to me yeah and it's it's so much easier to give stuff away than to than but i tried to figure out a way for me to be able to sell little things for for micro drives like these little screws that we use and my the one of our department admins heard about it and like said something to one of the lawyers and they had this big meeting they're like you can't sell anything mm-hmm. and if you give it away you have to make sure that you have people sign something that says that we're not responsible for anything that happens it's okay. like what could happen? It's a tiny little brass nut, you yeah. know. What, what, what they swallow it. Yeah. They're they give it to yeah. you. <laughs> but anyway, so apparently so I have I have a bunch That's of them funny. These, these these like slotted nuts and I'm happy to send them to you okay. but you've got to be careful.
0: You're responsible <laughs> okay, for it. I'll, I'll not I won't throw it at people. I won't <laughs> no, no, jam you can do it whatever in, you want. You oh. just you can't hold us alive oh, Okay, okay <laughs> good, good. Okay, because I was thinking about just putting putting it in place. <laughs> okay. Can we talk? We actually really haven't talked about openness in science. Yeah. Like, can you talk about your opinions about data sharing and uh, maybe something that you've done. Data is always scary.
2: You know, and I, I think I, I was I was exposed to this very early in the Schnoi lab. This sort of his policy was always, you know, if you gather the data, then you're an author on the paper for it. And he understood that that these ensemble neural activity experiments were really hard to do. And, and that so that was sort of brainwashed into me very early. And, and I think Lauren has a, a very similar philosophy. I think now that Matthias is is uh, in, um, in industry rather than in, in academia anymore, he may have stopped including him as an author on papers. In fact, they've submitted some of their data to Open Source Archive. I think that, that, that there, there probably needs to be some sort of statute of limitations. But it really is sad that there's so much amazing data that's just locked up Mm-hmm. Um, in people's labs because they rightly think one, one day I'm going to analyze this and, and it'll it'll be really we'll, we'll have a very interesting and amazing result and this this guy Matthias Carlson that was Warren's first graduate student did design and did this really neat experiment with this uh, w-shaped alternation maze and the result has been something like maybe eight or nine papers right that have flown from that in the last decade. And I, I recognize that when you when you do a good job designing experiment and when you do a good job conducting the experiment, the result is is, is a gold mine. Yeah. But it is sad. It like that there there are a number of things that I've seen recently where I think, oh man, it would be really cool to analyze that data. And it's mm-hmm. it's hard. It's not just hard because people are conservative though. I think the second reason is because people recognize that getting their data into a form where they can share it with somebody else yeah. is, is really hard. Yeah,
0: no, I mean That's actually one that I think only people that work in the field can appreciate, which is the idea that I might be the only person that can understand my crazy abbreviations and language that I've used to sort of structure my data or my experiments. And to even try to sit somebody down and explain it to someone might just be a gigantic block, a roadblock that prevents me from wanting to just put everything out there. Yeah. Or it could be that data would need this huge roadmap for somebody to actually use use it usefully. You're exactly right.
2: And I the reality is that t- to do a good job is really hard. And so yeah.
0: it's like making the f- it usable between multiple labs is not yeah,
2: too so, simple. Well, yeah. So there's, so curating it properly or, or the, like metadata, these are words that I think people like to use. So I'll give the example. So there is there is a group that has tried to set up an, an archive of data for people who are interested in analyzing for science or computational purposes. They're funded by the NSF, uh, and NIH have this program called the CRCNS, which must be Computational Resources for Computational Neuroscience. That can't be right. Anyway, whatever CRCNS stands for. Mm-hmm. And so they actually set up a website, this group based out of Berkeley. They only have a very few big systems neuroscience data sets, meaning mini neurons at the same time. Mm-hmm. Two of them are hippocampus. So one comes from the Buzaki lab. It's been there for a while. And Mitsuseki sort of curated this and put it up there for them. But what's funny is that when I When I started trying to use this, I was like, okay, look, the Buzaki lab has done play cell experiments for so long. We need some data to train our hidden Markov models. Let's see what we can find. Mm -hmm. And it very quickly became clear it's really hard. Like they have a a nice, they actually have a paper, a faculty of 1000 paper, and then also a a document that just walks you through this data. Uh, but it's useful for things like spike sorting algorithms because the raw data is there. But the, the mapping between behavior and task and activity and LFP, is it's unclear and it turned out that a lot of files were missing a lot of the behavioral yeah. files were missing so as it turned out I emailed Cameron Diba, who had gathered the data sets we were interested in and he was like oh oops and he emailed it to me immediately right Sure. And yeah. so that has sort of sparked a collaboration so he's, he's coming to visit the lab next week so it worked out really well but it, there was this barrier and it took him time right that meant that he had yeah. to go and dig through some hard drive and find the right files
0: yeah it's, I guess it's not entirely easy but it's good that people are trying and like maybe yeah maybe just breaking down the barriers in any way possible is probably a good way forward i would guess yeah um, absolutely yeah. so the the frank lab now has
2: posted this big this beautiful wma's data that uh, matias had gathered so they have like seven animals over two weeks worth of just beautiful play cell Stuff Mm -hmm. Uh, and and he just recently uploaded it, so that's also there now. And I'm familiar with that data, so it's very easy for me to look at. I don't think there's any any explanation, (laughs) just a bunch of like MATLAB structs. Yeah, but most of it makes sense, I guess, with less information. But I could understand somebody trying to come to that data and then and and try to use it would be challenging. And then what you discover? So recently, I was interested in ripples, right, and ripple detection, Mm -hmm. and uh, and I wanted to look at multi-unit activity. And what I realized was in the Frank lab, when we did our normal sampling and our normal thresholds, uh, we filtered against multi-unit activity, so low threshold action potentials that are not discriminable. But the rate of those events are relevant. They tell you something about the state that the hippocampus is in. So it was gone. It, it doesn't exist, right? And mm-hmm. there's this sort of tragedy of why didn't we just save all the raw data? Mm-hmm. But of course, the raw data would have been terabytes and yeah so there's this the opposite trade-off as well but i i actually had was funded by our supercomputer center at rice for a a summer project a couple years ago to try to set up some sort of archive i feel like that there's a way to do this in such a way that it's investigators feel like it's valuable where they say okay my data is backed up I no longer have to have this paranoid fear that there's going to be a simultaneous earthquake, fire, and raid on my home yeah. that will destroy all my data, right? Um, Which we all think about. <laughs> you're, you know, the Bitcoin locker or whatever it's yeah. called. Um, where in exchange for that sort of freedom that they give their data and with no curation and no barrier, right? And then they feel free to just ignore the emails from people that say, I'm interested in your data. Mm-hmm. Because what what my guess is that will happen is that, that that a service like that would allow for, yeah, so there's there'll, there'll be some things where, where people might misinterpret, but you could easily have something where you say, okay, well, you need to pass your papers by us before you do anything. Mm-hmm. And if they're reasonable, then you say, great, you know, include me as an author, and then here we go. And if they, if they need more work, but they're still positive, then you say, oh, wow, there's actually some analysis here that's going to yield, yield something interesting. And then if they're not crappy, you just don't respond to the email. That's true. I think it's that easy. Though there is the fear, especially for young faculty, but I think for faculty of any age who are, who are doing a new, like work, working in a direction where they have a vision, a lot of times the, the publications don't track the vision, right? So I, I, my vision is this, Real-time detection of hippocampal reactivation, right? We're gonna we're gonna read people's minds and read their memories like online why they're happening, and then manipulate them. Mm-hmm. That's a vision. The reality is that the paper trail right now doesn't have that, right? Yeah. And so you can imagine a scenario where I I produce some data that's going to allow me to do some analysis, which is going to lead to that, right? It's like a three-year plan or something like this. And then you're always worried. Okay, well, what if somebody comes in? And they figure out how to decode X. And I was planning to do that. And now my system is going to use their decoder. And then there's a credit assignment problem, which is that then people say, oh well, Cal did a great job gathering that data. But if it wasn't for Bob, then he would never have been able to build that decoder. Mm-hmm. Right. And so Bob gets the credit for being the genius. And it's hard. Especially for junior faculty, credit assignment is turns out this is the the key to tenure is credit. And the right credit for the right things Mm -hmm. it seems like you know all the things that you you imagine are important like grants and and papers i think that they're less important in the end to at least at good universities than reputation and reputation has is quantified by these letters that people write for you and those letters say you know he's done groundbreaking work and blah 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 and is is clearly the best in the world at this Mm -hmm. and so if bob gets that letter instead of me that 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 could mean I don't get tenure. Yeah, it's not just the credit; it's the it's the future credit. So I'm I'm projecting forward what I want to do with this data. Yeah, and so in many cases I may be quite comfortable saying, "Oh, you can you go ahead and look at this other thing," because that's not what I'm expecting I, I, I'm going to do, right? But then there's this fear, right? And so this is why I feel like that these things work best in relationship, right? I mean, it's so weird, right? But but so one of the things that's been really awesome is that Matthijs Vandermeer and I got this human frontiers uh matice won this grant and he let me tag along on his coattails right which is awesome because it's like a hundred thousand dollars worth of coattails a year right yeah. and what's been great about that is that that's meant that i've been spending a lot of time talking with him and he's a very adept computational neuroscientist but he's also very interested in behavior and understanding behavior and sort of Like psychology at at, at a fundamental level. And so he's quite happy for me to be the person on our team who's sort of known for the engineering aspects of building systems and building tools, right? And so that means that we can work together and and look at problems when we both have some vision for, for who we are in the team, Mm -hmm. but we can, he can help me build better ripple detection systems and I might be able to help him do some analysis. And we're not, there's not like a sense of jealousy, right? Yeah. I think ideally that's how all science is, and you're you're always like that all the time and you're just not worried about this this whole credit assignment thing,
0: yeah. right? I would love to get a really beefy description of like your current lab state. Can we go back to like what your vision is and like what you're doing like right now to like answer that?
2: So so when I was starting the lab, basically what I was pitching was this idea of neuroprosthetics but meets other things other than brain machine interfaces. So mainly cognitive science trying to understand how the brain is doing higher level functions like memory, but then it, it has also expanded into things like Parkinson's disease and, and therapeutics. So uh, what I've noticed is that there are some very closed platforms for building real-time neural center processing systems. So there's some companies like well, Plexon, BlackRock, or whatever they're called these days. Tucker Davis, I think, has done a really good job of building libraries for their hardware. Ripple... Neuralinks to a lesser extent, but they each have their own little thing, right? So you you learn their little method for getting the data off. And sometimes it can be done with low latency and, and high fidelity. Sometimes it can't. Sometimes the answer is, you know, it's going to take you 50 milliseconds or 100 milliseconds to even be able to start playing with the data.
0: This is to be clear, again, these are like electrodes in a brain just picking up. Right. So
2: so there's actually two big problems, scientific problems that we're we're, we're focused on, but we're trying to build the system, right? So the scientific problems, the first is Parkinson's disease. So there's current treatment for people with later stages of Parkinson's disease is to insert a, a big stimulating electrode into one of their basal ganglia structures and to stimulate. And it's basically like a pacemaker. And, and it works fairly well for about 60% of the people that get it. And maybe with some tuning or second implantation, the, the, the success rate goes up. The, the weird thing about DBS and Parkinson's disease is people don't actually understand why it works. So the original idea was that this high-frequency stimulation was functioning like an, a lesion, because prior to doing the stimulation experiments, they had previously just gone in and lesioned these nuclei in people and had seen symptoms improve. But then when people actually stuck recording electrodes into primate models into rat models, even into some humans, they they saw that, in fact, the stimulation activates these nuclei. And so it became mysterious exactly how it's working. Mm. And so the idea is that if we can understand what's happening in this system, then we will be able to target stimulation at the right times where it can provide the most benefit.
0: Was it previously, like you said, pacemaker like so just always giving it, it and is, not it's so it's currently, not it's not smart, it's just doing not it. Not at all
2: smart. So Medtronic, yeah. I think, has a vision for trying to add some smarts. They've been talking about it recently. They've they've sort of identified that this is the next generation of DBS it needs to be closed loop. But what's weird is that they, they don't actually know what the signal is or what the Algorithm is that will that will properly use that they they can use to modulate stimulation. Okay, so I, I'm interested in taking this idea of movement preparation, which goes back to what I was doing as a graduate yeah. student, and using that as a signal for modulating DBS. And the, the observation is that one of the big symptoms that people have when they have Parkinson's disease is actually a difficulty initiating movement. So you'll see this sort of weird stuttering when you start walking or stop walking. And it's because the intent to start moving is there, but then there's some sort of block. It's true for hand movements too. So the thought is, we know that that's there. We know that DBS helps it. Could we potentially detect these things in the premotor structures and then modulate, so increase stimulation or change stimulation frequency? So in order to do that, we need something where we can read out neural activity rapidly, decode it, and modulate our stimulation, right? So we need something, a tool that will allow us to look at neurons, allow us to decode what they're representing at at in, in time and then affect something
0: that's really cool yeah
2: what's nice about that tool is that that relates really closely to what we were trying to do in understanding how memory works so one of the really neat discoveries of the last 20 years 30 years is that the hippocampus you have these neurons that have this sparse code that represents maybe space or represents a mental space that things then get placed in right? mm-hmm. so they call these place cells in rats they're active in, in particular locations. Uh, but that's true while animals are exploring. When they're asleep or when they've stopped moving, you get these bursts of activity where many of those cells are active all at the same time, just on a timescale of a few hundred milliseconds. And during those p- periods, if you like zoom in at, at the spikes, they're not disordered. They're actually often reactivating or replaying the sequence of spikes that happened when the animals were moving around, when they were exploring, when they were having the sparse code. Mm-hmm. And this replay, people hypothesize that that is actually the atomic unit of remembering. Yeah. So when we, when you remember something, what is the phenomenon that your brain does? And the idea is that the phenomenon is this reactivation, mm-hmm. ordered reactivation of, of the sequence. events, yeah. Yeah, of a sequence of, of, of things that that, mm-hmm. you know, I saw the light turn red, and then the car went forward and hit me. Right, yeah. It's just, you know, a sequence of, of of time and space and, and action. Yeah, especially
0: episodic memories that have this temporal and orderly, You know, I did this, I did this, I felt this way, and all those. And we know yeah. that those depend critically on the hippocampus, mm-hmm. right? And so it makes sense. So that there's a lot of marriage between what's already been known about its function, and then we see this like a correlate that's like, okay, so that's really exciting. Now the question is, is that actually, how do you manipulate that? Right?
2: Well, yeah. So no? the, the the there's this beautiful correlation between what we think should be going on and what we observe. But then the question is, is it actually, is it real or is it just an epiphenomenon? And so the dream is that we would love to be able to build a system that would look at these sequences and based on how we've this map that we previously built by looking at the animal as they've been exploring in an environment. They've built a cognitive map of their environment. So we see the activity of these individual neurons. We can tell where the animal thinks that they are at any point in time. And as they do sequential behaviors, we can see those sequences. Then look now at these bursts of activity during sleep or quiescent periods in learning and understand what they represent and then selectively perturb them. And the, the dream is that this would allow us to, say, prove that the replay of a place is what an what an animal uses to for example remember that food is in one arm of a maze and not in another arm of a maze mm-hmm. that connections between that reactivation and maybe other regions of the brain like the prefrontal cortex or the dopamine system or what allow them to make decisions or to you know like or dislike something so by combining electrical stimulation or optogenetic per- perturbation with this sort of real time decoding then we think that we can start teasing apart those those pieces What's cool about it is is now we're actually tracing a piece of information, like a a pattern, a thing, as it propagates. It's being generated by the hippocampus, is propagating out to these other regions, and the dream is that by by looking at one synapse downstream, two synapses downstream, three synapses downstream, time locked to this event which we can decode potentially in real time in the hippocampus, we can actually start perturbing that information processing, right? And this is the dream for many systems neuroscientists, right? This is what we want. We want to be mm-hmm. able to say we understand how information is processed in the brain. Yeah. And so the idea is can we can we move towards that by saying here's a tool that allows us to sort of hook new models or or new decoding techniques onto a, a, a superstructure that says, okay, I know what you want to do. I know what we're interested in is ensemble spiking maybe local field potential maybe some sort of behavioral signal and allow people to build things fairly easily and cheaply but still that have low enough latency to be able to have an effect on on the brain right because i mean yeah we, we we yes we see these sequences in real time real time meaning you know two weeks later after we do the experiment and process all the data, right? So we could do the processing. We just yeah. have to be able to do it fast. Yeah, and
0: be like, wait a second. I think I saw the memory happening. And yeah, then it's exactly. like, oh, shit, that was two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Dang
2: it, the rat's already dead. Yeah, oh, I know. We're
0: uh, that's really exciting, though. To me, that's like great marriage of amazing signal processing and then psychology of memory and trying to say, can we actually affect the brain as a computer in the way we think it should be doing In
2: And so to, to, to be fair, I think originally my vision was that we were going to do it all in the lab. I was mm-hmm. going to have like 10 neuroscientists and 20 engineers, and we're going to build these amazing systems and test them all. And then I've realized that that's actually less efficient. It's less fun. Then engaging with other people. So right now we have an ongoing collaboration with uh, Cameron Deeb. I mentioned him a minute ago, who's really interested in, in some of the data processing techniques that we developed with uh, Diane G at Baylor, who's he ha- he and a student have, have this amazing experiment where they've shown replay during the expression of a fear memory. It's, it's super cutting edge. It was presented at, at the neuroscience meeting. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not scooping anybody. Um, but so we're, mm-hmm. we're getting ready to do some closed loop perturbation in, in that experiment and see if we can erase fear and memories. And then um, with Matt Vandermeer, looking at how decisions are being made and how the decision-making process might be being based on, on sequential expression of now not replay, so not not past experience, but actual possible futures. Right? It's, it's interesting if, if you've ever thought about what imagination is.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I'm imagining it right now. No. <laughs> I'm
2: imagining it right now. So I feel like it's this is always it's just like so many other things in life. You yeah. have a profound thought. You're like, man, that's so profound. And then everybody else is like, well, yeah, that's
0: what I've been thinking all this time. No, yeah. well, we need to put it out. We need to express that. It can't just stick in your head all the yeah, time. Yeah, right. No. Yeah, no. is an imagination in my mind is thinking of things that haven't existed. Yeah, combinations.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. So, so Matt, Matt was part of an experiment in the Reddish Lab that I think. It summarized this for me, at least, as as the thing that's really exciting. So uh, they had an animal running in a maze that was a figure eight. So I'm drawing with my finger uh, 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 like an infinity sign. But what you have to understand about this infinity sign is that it's actually squares. So it's a big rectangle with a a line down the middle. Hmm. And this is a T-maze alternation test. So the animal has to run down the middle arm, turn left, move back around, get some food, run back to the middle arm, go back up it again, but this time turn right. And then come back the opposite side, get some food and then, and then keep looping like that, yeah. continuously alternating. And so what's cool about this is that they look, they were looking at replay in these animals. And on rare occasion, they saw some replay events where the animal. So the animal was getting rewarded. He was getting food at, at the top left and top right corners. And they saw these replay events where the, the replay would go from the top left corner directly to the top right corner. Mm-hmm. And what's really neat about this,
0: so they saw this, they're like, whoa, that's so crazy. Teleporting in a way, right?
2: Well, but in an intelligent way, the, the, the rat's like, why do I have to keep doing this crazy loop-de-loop? Yeah. Why can't I just go back and forth between the... There was a,
0: yeah, there was a way for me to just go there.
2: Yeah, exactly. So what's neat about it is that they, they were like, well, okay you know, because they're good scientists, they're like, maybe there was a time when the rat like actually ran this path, right? So he had it, he experienced it just once, but he experienced it, we didn't reward him because he doesn't get rewarded if he does that. So they did a whole nother set of experiments where they, they trained some new rats and every time they tried to like turn around on that, tap them with a ruler. <laughs> like, no, 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 not for you. And so they they guarantee that they had never done this thing, but they still had these 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 sequences they were they were expressing. And so to me, this is like the essence of imagination is taking your experiences and putting them together into something new that you have not experienced yet. And I mean, what's what's cool about being a human in, in the world is is maybe animals do this too, right? Is that you have these these Maybe I don't have these moments, but some people have these moments where they do that mental travel, right? And suddenly they've, they've gone somewhere that nobody has ever gone before, right? Mm. I mean, you think about like Einstein saying, wait, I wonder if what would happen if nothing can go faster than light? You know, mm. it's like, I had this idea and whoa, something I new I was created, yeah. right? Like I I feel like that's – as humans, we want to be creative and there's there's ideas are one of the few things that we potentially can actually create. Now, I feel like so often I have ideas like I wanted a diaper that would sense when my son was going to go to the bathroom. (laughs) And I like look it up and I'm like, oh, man, there's like already five companies. It's like 20 patents. I
0: I find myself every time I think I have a unique idea. Thanks to the internet, now we can realize you're one of a bazillion people that have thought of that.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
0: But you know what? The it's re- rare. But the rare ones that are truly yours, or at least like even the feeling of it in a way is
2: Yeah. You know, fun. it's no less creative mm-hmm. if somebody else has thought of it before True. if you didn't know it, right? Mm-hmm. It,
0: True. And, and and you came to it on your own. Like, yeah. You did. And the
2: the most beautiful thing is when you respect the people that had the idea already, right? You're like, mm-hmm. yeah. I had, a, I had the same idea as that. One of my favorite experiences in graduate school is this guy named Stephen Boyd. who taught a uh, convex optimization class. Maybe this can be my last story. Yeah. And so... In class one day, he's sort of going through matrix transformations. So you can use a matrix to represent a transformation from one vector space to another vector space. And so if you think of the first vector space as a sphere, certain kinds of matrices will transform that sphere by squishing it in one dimension. Other matrices will transfer it into a pancake. Other transformations will squish another dimension into like a pencil. And uh, so he was describing this pencil pancake, and, and you know, he's like, okay, so w- if we write this matrix down, what is this going to transform the sphere into? And I raised my hand, and I was like, it's a pencil. This is a class of like, you know, 60 people at Stanford. So, like, uh, you want to raise your hand. It's, it's fun to participate. This class is now on Coursera, by the way. It's a very good class, uh, uh, linear dynamic systems. And he's like, yes, exactly. And he went on. And then about maybe five minutes later, another guy in the back, so like, timidly raised his hand. He's like, Professor Boyd, I'm really confused about that, that example that you just gave. I don't understand it. I, I feel like it's a pancake. And Professor Boyd went back and he was like, oh, yeah, you're right. And he went on with class. And I was like, I made the same
0: fast mistake as Stephen Boyd. I'm almost as smart as him. That's yeah. great. OK, good. <laughs> I, would, I guess we'll just, yeah, I'll say thank you so much for speaking with us today. And that was awesome. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, appreciate it. Cool. That's going to do it for today's episode. As always, head to our website, brainpodcast.com, where you can check out additional videos and links related to the science we talked about today. Be sure to follow us also on Facebook or at Brain Podcast on Twitter. If you enjoy Brain Matters and want to help us continue making episodes, head to our website, brainpodcast.com. There, you can donate to us directly, or if you have some holiday shopping to do, Click on our Amazon portal. Just shop like normal, and a portion of your spending will be donated to us. Finally, you can help us by leaving us a review on iTunes or by telling your friends about the show. We appreciate all of the support. Thank you. The music in today's episode was by Jeffrey Cantu Ledesma. The first piece was Along the Isar from the album A Year with 13 Moons, and you're listening to Blue Nudes 1 through 4 from his most recent album, In Summer. Definitely go check out his music. Finally, this is our first episode released post-election, and I feel compelled to say a few things. If you're listening to the show, you probably care about science. You probably also appreciate that in order to cure diseases or to improve technology or to face environmental challenges like climate change, We need facts. We need a process to empirically and soberly assess these problems if we want to make informed decisions. Science is that process. But with a president-elect who has taken positions that disregard and disrespect the legitimacy of science, we need to work harder than ever to advocate for science education and for financial support. Now more than ever, we need to get involved and to be loud. And hopefully we'll be able to win over those who question the value of science. So stay engaged, stay hopeful, stay woke. Let's all try to keep loving each other too. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.